All right, welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. I'm Kevin Libwit with Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and today we're talking containerization, use and distribution of reusable software and all its impacts on the world of microbial bioinformatics. Andrew, I'm curious if you could start, when did you begin utilizing containerization and how did it become kind of a best practice in your world? I guess it's probably about seven or eight years ago. I heard about containers. And on the other hand, I was uh, having terrible trouble installing bioinformatics software. I don't know if you realize back in the olden days, um, it would be quite difficult. You didn't have Conda, you know, homebrews around, that kind of thing. It, you know, it was just a, it was a mess. You'd have like Debian Med, uh, which would be apt to get, but that's quite difficult to put stuff into. And so bioinformatics software was just a wild west and trying to run anything was just a pain. And you might have people spending days and days trying to install software. And so my first introduction to it was just making containers so that other people could easily run my software and uh, on, on their on their stuff. Because sometimes installations would be difficult, you know, complex software, complex pipelines, you couldn't just hand them something and, and it would work. So that's that was my first introduction it was a Docker. And then I did some more complex systems, you know, um, I think my, my first proper project was taking a very complex website with, you know, client server, you know, multiple backend servers, databases, all this kind of stuff. And then it was GeneDB and then putting those into containers uh, and then doing kind of a Docker compose, you know, to kind of spin the whole thing up, you know, and have them all linked. And that meant that you didn't have to have all these complex things. You could have just these things you drop and they work. Oh, that's interesting. I'm getting, I'm curious to get your perspective too on the website side, because that's where a lot of this technology kind of came from and more properly matured. And then we've co-opted it in the bioinformatics field for slightly different purposes. So we can kind of get into that, but maybe even, and you touched on some great stuff there with homebrew. That's when I kind of entered the chat was in the use of homebrew and how to get things going. Then I learned about Python or not Python, uh, Conda and, you know, all those uh, package managers and then containerization. Actually, before we start, maybe, do you mind giving us a, a TLDR? What is containerization? Why is it important? It is like a sandbox. In the old days, you had VMs, or still VMs, yeah. which is totally disconnected from the base uh, operating system on top. So it's like you're running Windows, you're running um, OS X or Linux, and then you have another operating system totally on top, and it's totally encapsulated, and it can't get to the uh, to the main system usually. And Docker is much more, and Singularity, much more lightweight. And so they can reuse some of those bits. And the it's not a very firm line. It's more of a soft, gentle line, you know, a, a fence that you can jump over if you need to. And so that that's kind of what it is. And the idea is that you can spin these things up very quick. You know, VMs are actually these big things that, you know, it's, it's like a starting up, you know, an old diesel engine, you know, it kind of chugs along and it gets going and it warms up. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, Docker is more like an electric car, you push a button and it starts. Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, the, that kind of background. And the two major ones with these are Docker and Singularity. And there is minor differences, you know, Singularity is more suited to, say, your traditional uh, HPC systems, you know, just the, the way it works and the way it uh, kind of is slightly more secure. And then Docker is actually one that most people use, to be quite frank. Um, and it gives you this beautiful system um, that you can you can log into it or you can have one tool. My first interactions uh, on a large scale with bioinformatics tools and Docker was actually um, on a, a cluster, you know, your classical Slurm cluster. Mm. 
and they, they would load in um, a singularity uh, containers for each tool, which is great. Um, but building them and having them up to date is quite difficult. So what I did was I got a whole list of software, wrote a little script, which would automatically build um, the definition files, config files. And from there, that would create singularity containers. And so, you know, it was kind of automating this process of bioinformatics tool version, and then it would build it. And essentially, it was just getting Conda, you know? Yeah, yeah. So Conda, install tool, bang, there you go. And in 90% of cases, it would just kind of work. And which is great. And that meant a lot of tools were instantly available. Prior to that, someone would handcraft each file and, you know, be tickets to IT and there'd be all this yes. back and forth and testing. And, you know, it might be a week of work to get one tool put in. And I did a hundred in, in an afternoon. Um, yeah. And that's kind of what people went and did, you know, with uh, bio containers and things like that. Yeah. And, and maybe the, we're, we're kind of hopping over that uh, step in the evolution of like, best practices Sorry. in bioinformatics from no no i totally hear that from like hand installs you were almost like i think a lot of people came in especially you're talking like 2014 2016 everyone was their own sys admin it's like we all had our own linux environment and then let's just install tools directly to the machine and that's where it became really difficult because you had this you know chaos of library dependencies that you were trying to manage yourself and then you tried to run a tool that maybe you know uh, had to rely on blast 2.3 or whatever it was but then you have like three different blast versions because other tools need different blast versions and it was like how do you keep all these paths aligned it was just chaos it was just like untangling headphones that were like in your pocket for the day kind of thing but i think what you said is, is appropriate right it's kind of separated from that base environment so you everything is self-contained that you need uh, to run that resource and it becomes um unbelievably valuable especially whenever you have very complex system exactly what you're talking about and I actually got introduced to it whenever I was writing tools for the base space applications. And it was not on my server. It wasn't on my machine. I had to load the software some way. And the way that they allowed you to do it was write a Docker image or uh, yeah, create a Docker image. So even as I was approaching that problem, I was thinking, how the heck do I get all my library dependencies to run in this environment? And then I learned about Dockers and containers. I was like, oh, I can containerize all my software and it just exists. And it pulls every time I launch the application. This is bananas. And then I, we immediately saw the utility across bioinformatics of there's that age old problem of it works on my machine, right? Like, you know, you see a paper, it's like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful software. It does everything I need to need it to do. And then maybe there's like, you know, a supplementary section where it's like a markdown file on how to set up that, that, that environment with your local install. It's like, I can't get it to work. But then once it's containerized, it's like everybody can get it to work. So then that became just kind of like a light bulb moment in uh, across microbial bioinformatics. And now what you're seeing is really common practice, put a tool out, create the container. Yeah. And uh, so I even do that for testing. So if I'm giving you a project and it doesn't have a Docker, just to, to make it easier, you know, before I modify anything, I will build the environment uh, using, it, using Docker and put the software in there and try and install it from scratch because there's so many hidden dependencies that people don't realize and it's only when you do that totally from scratch, you know, you install a base Ubuntu, you know, nothing else in there. And then you mm. start going through, chucking through, you know, what are these dependencies the developers have not written down? And uh, you can very quickly tease these things out. And, uh, you know, you, you get an exact specification for exactly how to run this tool. Super, super useful. 
and then it's contained and everyone else can then reuse that and they have a working environment. Yes. Okay. So hopefully we've given enough of a preface and didn't lose too many people in the technical details on what containerization is and its utility in the field. Let's talk about the technical details a little bit because how you create a container or an image rather uh, for people to use in their own environments, there's a lot of nuance in terms of how, you know, what do you, you talked about base images as an example, how people write base images really will depend on its ultimate use case. Cause there's some, especially in the world of like uh, website deployment and things like that, their aim is to make it as lightweight as possible because sometimes they have Docker images that are getting pulled millions of times to, to serve all their different users and things like that. And even if you look in the bioinformatics world, this is true for things like the next strain universe where their Nextclade tool, they have very, 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 very lightweight um, Docker uh, images with not even just like base um, Linux libraries. Like you can't do, if you launch one of their uh, uh, images, you can't even navigate the environment because it's so lightweight. It's meant to do one specific thing. Whereas if you look at maybe the staff B container images, we assume those are going to be run in workflow managers where you might do some file manipulation. You might need to do grep in between things. And they're a lot heavier um, because we assume people are going to need some of those base Linux or like Ubuntu package tools uh, to navigate their, their environment there. So I'm curious what your perspective is, especially on the website side versus uh, building tools and containers for other bioinformatics scientists for workflow managers. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, choice base image is a difficult one. There are different camps. Some people use like Alpine, which is a yes, super light base, which is great. But, you know, I personally always use Ubuntu or Debian, usually Ubuntu, um, primarily because it works very easily and I know how to make it work. The other alternative would be using um, kind of a Red Hat um, CentOS kind of deal, you know, that environment. And it's then that, that comes down to, you know, how do you install packages? I, I like to use apt-get because it's straightforward um other people um you know you can start with a base image of conda um so you can take someone you've got layers so someone can build say just a docker which installs conda you know makes available and then you can use that as your base image and so you can layer these things on top which is really really handy um for say standardization and things like that um personally my my first step is usually I will uh, get the latest long-term uh, LTS Ubuntu, yeah. and then I will install Conda. And, you know, you just copy and paste at that point. And from there, you know, I'll do your standard app get update to make sure everything is actually updated, fix any key issues, if, if there happens to be any, and then make sure the, the whole image is up to date. There's no security holes or anything like that. So basically security patches, nothing else. And standard things I always install are like wget nano and, yeah. and, and, and things like that because they're usually not there. And then if you're doing software development, you will probably need to build essentials as well. So that's compilers and stuff like that. If you're compiling, if you're not, you don't need to worry about it. And then from there, you go into your, your stuff. And usually it's fairly straightforward. It's like copying the code from somewhere, maybe download from GitHub or copying it in from the current working directory. Um, and sometimes you have to set up certain permissions, um, well, usually. And <laughs> then, uh, you know, at the very end, you'd say, okay, well, this is a working directory. It's a command, you know, that, you know, that yeah. is the end point. And then from there you have it. So it's not, it's not that difficult. If you go into ChatGPT these days, it'll just tell you, you know, I, I want to make this into a, a Docker, you know, how can I do it? it yeah. It tells you. 
Yeah. And I would say uh, Curtis Capsack, who's on our team at Theogen, and Kelsey Florek from uh, the Wisconsin Public Health Laboratory, they wrote some incredible documentation on how to build Docker images in the Staff Beat Docker page. So we can link that uh, in the description below. Uh, but I, I think you you highlighted pretty much the base steps there. When you're writing a Docker file to create the image, you give your your you know fundamental resources there, like you talked about, like you have an uh, an OS you start with, and then the basic tools for them to be able to navigate and do some basic compute, um, text management, text wrangling, and things like that. And then you get the tool in there itself. And then what you can often do is just follow the original author's uh, instructions. How do you install it on a local system? Do you get it from GitHub? Does it need any other you know uh, library dependencies as we spoke about? You just kind of stuff it all in there. And that is actually kind of an interesting point because even if you don't know how to use uh, or write your own Docker file, if you're getting your tool on GitHub, I can't stress enough how important it is to use uh, semantic versioning and get version releases out because that makes it a lot easier for somebody else to containerize your, your resource. There's, you'll see in staff B, you know, we have like hundreds of tools we've containerized at this point. But some of those tools have authors that came from an academic background and not necessarily thinking, all right, I, I need to version control this and get this static. But it's like, man, it's such a useful tool that they developed as part of their thesis or something like this. So what, but we want to make sure that it's a static version in the container. We don't want to just get clone uh, the repo because if they make a change, it'll be off that main branch. So we've come up with these funny tricks where we have to get clone a specific commit and we think, okay, this is the stable commit. We, yeah, so that's what we have to do, especially during the pandemic. I remember that was quite yeah. common of, a, of an approach we had to do. Um, whereas if you had it as a stable release, a versioned release, okay, we, we know exactly how to name that. We can even make that a variable in the Docker file and just update it accordingly. Um, and then from there, you're, you're pretty much off and running. And that would be, you'd have a container there where people can use the intended tool and then in their, uh, in their image as well, or in their container as they're running it in their, instance of it they can interact with the files they can add things they could write their own code if they care to you know add another quick bash script or something of the sorts uh and then they're off and running which is again not the case for all images alpine i, I think that's actually the exact image that uh uh the next strain people use because it's so lightweight and it's sometimes surprising when you you know you uh you launch a really lightweight image and it doesn't have anything in there and you're like you're totally lost because it's not meant, it's meant to do one thing very well a billion times. Whereas the images we're talking about is it is meant to do that one thing and potentially a couple of other things as well, like the text wrangling and maybe basic arithmetic or something like that um, on top of I that guess, one resource. I guess, uh, say, standardization for a soft B, one advantage is you might have the same base image. And yeah. then it, you don't have to re-download that each time. You know, it's already yes. there and it's waiting and you just kind of add the bits on top. And that's one of the, the real advantages of uh, of Conda, sorry, of um, of Docker, is that you can do, you know, that the bulk of the work can just be there ready and waiting to go. And then you just add on your little extra tool on top of that. I actually do a lot of testing when I'm, uh, when I'm writing code, I would usually do it within the Docker container. So mm. um, I will log into it directly. You, you don't just have to run the Docker command, uh, you know, and, and run a command and get the results. You can actually log in and, and get a command prompt and do your work from there. Yeah. And so I really enjoy that because it means that I absolutely know what the environment is uh, because I've spec'd it out. And if I make a mistake, I just delete and start again. You know, it's yeah. a very, very quick turnaround. 
um, in terms of, uh, of what you're doing. And so I find that phenomenally useful. Um, but one big question is always, you know, what do you include and what do you don't? Because yes. a working Docker is uh, can be quite different to the actual just pure base level installation. And particularly in Bioformatics, where we have uh, extra things you need to add in, like extra database and things like that. That's a big point. Because, yeah, we're talking about the size of the Docker image of, you know, someone versus Alpine versus using Ubuntu. And that that's already a discrepancy. But then the bigger conversation comes into, do you include a database? You know, because then you can really explode the size of your container and it becomes a lot more difficult to ship. But if you sometimes with some images, it's not useful. There, there's no utility without the database itself. So that is always a kind of um, philosophical quandary where we're debating back and forth, especially in the staff be Docker admins, myself, uh, Curtis Kapsack, Aaron Young, Kelsey Florick, and Coot Lujan from uh, Connecticut. Do we include the database here? And, and that's always something tough is because if you have the database, yeah, wh where do you land on database inclusion? We've had this conversation recently with even like the Gambit work we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it depends. Like it's a huge, it depends. If it's small, absolutely. Yeah, it's small. Small. Oh, that, that's a good yeah. question. Oh, I don't know. Like, a, you know, maybe a Meg, you know, that that's small. No one will notice. For sure, you know? yeah. Once you get um, the gig status, it's like that's a different echelon. When it's the gigs, that's the problem, and the the big problem then becomes if if you have to pay, say, in the cloud, you know, charges to download a three gig database. If you do it once, it's fine, but if you do a thousand times, it's not fine. You know, that can be very expensive. Whereas if you have it within a Docker container, then that may be you know that'll be downloaded once and then it'll be reused and you, yeah. you don't have the extra charges coming in and Cash, out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you save a fortune then. And but if you're just doing it once, you don't save a fortune. So it's this kind of trade-off <laughs> and balance. And you just have to be so mindful of that people don't like big containers, uh, particularly if you're running them um not on the cloud, you know, you run them at home or, or on a laptop and that kind of thing. So you have to be so careful and people are very passionate about it. But I think it's a very pragmatic thing. You can have the theoretical and the pure, and then you yeah. have the well, this is how it actually works in real world. Uh, that that's that that's a pretty good way to frame it. Where there's um the purest thought of the most lightweight shippable containers versus how is this actually going to be used in different settings and what is the most practical case of that. And the way we've solved it in staff B is we often offer both. We often like Kraken's probably a good one. Gambit's a good one where it's like, hey, here's the super lightweight one where you can plug and play the database, especially maybe if you have it located or uh, hosted locally on your environment or, or otherwise, or you want to, uh, you know, localize the latest and greatest database, go for it. Here's that version. It's static there. If your laboratory that um, exactly what you said doesn't want to incur all those egress fees or localization fees on the cloud because you're going to run it tens of thousands of times and you know, one or two gigs isn't bad at one at the scale of one or two samples, but 20,000 samples or something like that, especially daily, monthly, or whatever it might be, adds up fast. In that instance, here's that same image with the added Docker, or rather with the added database. And that that is the beauty of what we're doing right now. It's like, we don't necessarily have to draw the hard line. It isn't that much more work for us to offer, for, to bifurcate to some degree and, and offer both there. Anyway, we could talk about this all day, so I oh, think we yeah. should probably keep going. <laughs> yeah, forgot to put the yeah, exactly. All right. So we'll see everyone in the next one.